Good, brother. How are you? Good. So good to hear your voice. This is Dr. Raj Punjabi chatting to me from his office in downtown Boston. COVID's not going to cause a wrench in the plans. We had planned to meet in Oxford not long after this was recorded, but Corona put a stop to that. No pressure on your shoulders, by the way. (laughs) I've known Raj for a long time. We first met as medical residents in Boston 15 or so years ago. I'm a bit older, so Raj was my trainee at one point, but mostly I learned from him. Today, Raj is the founder and CEO of Last Mile Health, which brings life-saving primary health care to some of the world's most remote communities. In 2016, he was named by Time as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's won a bunch of awards like that, including one near and dear to me, the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship. But coolest of all, Raj has been knighted in his home country of Liberia, receiving, get this, the distinction of Knight Commander in the most venerable order of the pioneers of the Republic of Liberia. Annoyingly, he's not even 40 yet, and I refuse to call him Sir Raj. Accolades aside, the thing about Raj is that he has a really big heart, and that comes through every time you talk to him. Our conversations often come back to the same simple idea that animates us both. Yeah, we're so grateful for the care we have, but it it is still a privilege, man. It is not a right yet. It needs to be. Last Mile Health's model is changing the lives of some of the world's poorest people. And while doing so, Raj has inspired a lot of people to see things differently. He's the kind of systems leader I've been trying to highlight in this series. So when we were putting together an episode about how to make healthcare a right, not a privilege, I called Raj. Sounds good. Cool. Raj, you ready? Yeah. Hi, you're listening to Reimagine, a podcast about the visionaries who are seeking solutions to the world's most pressing problems. I'm Peter Drobak from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. In this episode, we're talking about the right to health. Every one of you listening right now is going to need healthcare at some point in your life, and so will everyone you care about. Some of us are lucky enough that we don't have to worry about whether we could get that healthcare when we need it. But for so many, that's not the case. If you can't afford it, if you have the wrong passport or the wrong job, you and your family are out of luck. Access to healthcare is a privilege. Think about how insane that is, especially right now. COVID-19 has made it blindingly obvious that a threat to health anywhere is a threat to health everywhere. Of course, this is not a new story. Every single day, people are dying of entirely preventable, treatable diseases simply because they're poor or because they live too far from medical care. Children die from pneumonia, diarrhea, and malnutrition. A staggering number of women and babies don't survive childbirth. Dr. Paul Farmer, who you heard from in episode one, has a name for this. Stupid deaths. Every time we let someone die of a condition we know how to treat, that's a stupid death. It's a reminder that poverty is the most deadly pathogen of all. How big a problem is this? According to the World Health Organization, half of the world's population cannot access essential health services. 
That's nearly 4 billion people. Millions of the most vulnerable families are forced to choose between health care and food. Tell me that's not stupid. Tell me that with all the wealth and prosperity and technology that we've created as a civilization, we can't do better? Don't you want to change that? Raj Punjabi wants to change that. As you'll hear in a moment, Raj is a great storyteller, and he's always got a ton of aphorisms up his sleeve. Here's just one. Illness is universal, says Raj. Access to healthcare is not. That doesn't have to be true. Our story starts in Liberia, on the west coast of Africa. It's here in the country of Raj's birth that the seed of his vision was planted. Liberia is home to around 5 million people. It's one of Africa's oldest republics with a unique history and magnificent forests rich in biodiversity. But starting in 1989, decades of civil war brought the country to its knees. By the time the fighting was over in 2003, thousands had lost their lives. The economy had shrunk by 90%, and the majority of Liberians were left living in extreme poverty. Building a healthcare system nearly from scratch would be difficult anywhere. In 2003 Liberia, it was daunting. The country's total health spending amounted to $8 per person per year. $8. That's barely enough to buy basic vaccines. That's barely enough to buy a sandwich. So building a bunch of brand new hospitals and training enough doctors to reach those in need was not an option a radically different approach was needed. Many healthcare systems are built around hospitals, and most hospitals are in cities. Seems like a logical way to reach the most people, right? But in Liberia, as in many parts of the world, for rural communities, the nearest medical care can be days away, often by foot. So what if we could bring healthcare to the people instead? That was the question that Raj and his colleagues asked. And their answer was to take an old idea, community health workers, and reinvent it for the 21st century. Raj is going to tell you more about how Last Mile Health works. But first, I wanted to ask him about his own story, because it's driven so much of his work. The story really starts back in South Asia. You know, I'm of Indian heritage. My grandparents actually fled the partition of India and Pakistan in the 1940s. My parents then, a generation later, migrated to West Africa, to Liberia. I had the privilege of being born and raised in Liberia and had a conventional childhood. I loved kicking a soccer ball around, kind of like my son's like now, and I went to school in, in Monrovia in the capital. But things changed when I was nine years old in the fourth grade. At that time, Liberia, having had a long history of inequality, really descended and erupted into civil war. And, you know, a few months later, uh, my parents, my father um, and mother, made a decision in the middle of the night uh, after the rebels captured the only international airport in the country and panic set into the city uh, that that we should flee. And at that point, you know, hundreds of thousands of people really coming from the rural countryside had flooded Monrovia, and and many people were trying to escape. And so 
my mom woke me up in the morning and said, Raj, pack your things. We have to go. And I packed up what a nine-year-old would, a bunch of action figure toys, uh, thinking we would be back in a month. And we were rushed to the center of town to this airfield that had been commandeered by a number of embassies, including the Indian embassy. And uh, by virtue of the fact that we had Indian passports, even though I was born in Liberia, um, we were allowed onto this relief rescue plane. I do remember my heart racing and, and looking out the hatch and watching hundreds of Liberian families w- w- who had Liberian passports who were also trying to escape the war and, and wanted to jump in this plane with us. And uh, they weren't allowed to. They were restricted and restrained, in fact, by Liberian soldiers, and we left those people behind on the airfield. We ended up in Sierra Leone and then eventually sought asylum here in the United States and were fortunate to be taken in by a family in North Carolina, and we had to restart life here in the United States. Wow. And what was that like? You know, it was a in many ways hard and because of being a refugee here. On the other hand, very conventional too. I'm, you know, my, my father had this saying, and um, I frankly used to be annoyed by it. And it's one of those things, you know, your parent tells you when you're a teenager, and uh, when you become an adult, you realize that annoying thing your parent told you actually changed your life or your perspective on life. Well, my dad used to say, "No condition is permanent." And it's a saying from a novel in West Africa, actually. And it was something that got him through the many losses in his life, including that moment when we had lost our home and he lost his source of income. And that mantra, no condition is permanent, helped him get the help of a, of a friend who helped him get a loan to start a clothing shop in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so we were, my dad, who, who had not sold clothes ever in his life, was trying to sell jeans and sneakers to a um, you know, clients and customers who are largely into hip-hop music, he had to change his name um, from, well, he thought he needed to change his name from Ramesh to having a more cooler street name. And so he went with Ricky. Um, and and uh, Crazy Ricky had his crazy deals on his crazy jingle that would play, uh, you know, buy one pair of jeans, get another free. And that would play, that jingle would play between Snoop Dogg's, you know, latest hit and Dr. Dre's The Chronic, you know. And that, that, that was really my childhood uh, in many ways, other than being a math and science geek. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, Ricky had some hustle. That's, that's funny. Yeah, Raj, I've, I've known you a long time. I've never heard that story. Um, it's funny. Yeah, that really did. I mean, that shop, you know, practically, obviously generated the income that allowed me to eventually go to college. But I hadn't forgotten about Liberia for me. I just could never get that memory out of my mind that we left people behind on the on the airfield. And mm. so whether it was guilt or whether it was curiosity or um, but some combination of that, I think just kept that in my mind. And by the time I had a chance to go to medical school, uh, I couldn't think of anything more meaningful with my medical training than to at least go back and see what had happened to the people we'd left behind between leaving the airfield, becoming a refugee, living my dad's American dream in that shop in between Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. I think all of that, you know, did play a role in shaping the decision to go back. And what was it that led you to medicine? And when did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? You know, I part of it's the typical answer from a person of Indian heritage, if I can say. I mean, my mother really <laughs> want, wanted to become a doctor when she was growing up in Bombay. And she, you know, she was actually not allowed to because um, I th- being a, an Indian 
young woman at that time period. There was a lot of restrictions on the kind of opportunities she could have. She did make it as far as becoming a medical lab technician. So she was uh, in, in a hospital there. I think that dream was always there for her. And it certainly influenced me. I, I was good at science and math. But I think ultimately, uh, the reason uh, for me was something I saw while I was in college. I had a chance to go out to the state of Alaska. I was 20 years old in 2001, and they had an extraordinary healthcare system in the state of Alaska. They had managed somehow in this place that had faced one of the largest tuberculosis epidemics in history. In the 1950s, one out of five children had been infected with tuberculosis because these remote communities were so far flung uh, and there weren't enough doctors to go around in the state of Alaska. They hired, trained, and equipped local women, largely in the villages, to become what they called chemotherapy aides at the time. And their initial goal was to help distribute um, a tuberculosis medicine, you'll know as an infectious disease doctor, called isoniazid. And they managed with this really an army of compassion and this what ended up being called community health aides in the state of Alaska, but known globally as community health workers, to uh, really stop that epidemic. They reversed the epidemic within a decade. And they went on over the following 50 years between the middle of the 20th century until the time I got there to train these community health workers, of course, paired with nurses who were a big part of the effort there as well, to take on everything from high blood pressure that patients were facing to ensuring that mothers were able to make it to a hospital to deliver their babies and provide the follow-up care. And then when I arrived in 2001, they were using telemedicine to even do the kinds of things a nurse would do here at the you know, Brigham and Women's Hospital emergency room, which was to put EKG leads, you know, the heart tracing leads, of course, uh, to, to check if a patient has a heart attack when they come in with a chest pain and know what to do in that moment. So to me, I was really moved by that example. And uh, it was actually that summer that I finally got back in touch with someone in Liberia. Of course, our family had fled, so I didn't have family left back there. But I had made contact with a local nonprofit organization that was working in healthcare. And three years later in medical school, I had a chance to go back and to Liberia. And, and it turned out the lessons from Alaska and, of course, the work of so many other really important organizations like Partners in Health and Doctors Without Borders had really influenced me. And so when I got home and saw that we had our own doctor shortage in rural areas, that really inspired me, that medicine could be used as a way to address inequity in the world. So, so Raj, paint us a picture. It's 2004, 15 years since you and your family fled Liberia's refugees, and you're returning for the first time as a, as a young medical student. After years of conflict in, in that country, in that region, what did the healthcare system look like in Liberia, particularly in rural areas? The war not only claimed a quarter million of our people, and we only had about four to five million people to begin with across the whole country, and displaced more than two-thirds of us, but, but it had also devastated the infrastructure. My school had been destroyed. There was no traffic lights in the capital. There was no running water in the capital. So imagine trying to just a country trying to rebuild with that starting point and the physical infrastructure being destroyed. But like many post-conflict countries that have experienced devastating war and, and many, many decades prior of poverty and inequality, we also had the lack of, of what one could call the human capital in the health sector, right? So to put that in perspective, we had 51 doctors left when the math was done 
to serve a country of 4 million people, right? So, so for a city like London or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, that would be like having about 8 to 12 doctors to serve those in, the populations of those entire massive cities. The challenge in Liberia, however, was compounded further in that if you got sick in the city in Monrovia where those few doctors remained, you might stand a chance. But if you got sick in the remote rural communities, in these rainforest communities, I was finding as a medical student that my patients were dying from conditions really no one should die from in the 21st century. HIV disease, complications of childbirth. I remember a seven-day-old with pneumonia whose mother knew the child was sick, but because she lived an eight-hour walk through the forest from the nearest doctor, could not get the antibiotics she needed for that child. And, and that was the first patient I ever saw dying in my arms because by the time she got to us and we did get antibiotics in her, it was already too late. Yeah, I, I can't think of other words than to say it, it lit a fire in my soul because it was too much to bear, not just as a doctor, but as a human being, whether you were from Liberia or not, to see that even in the 21st century, when we are having advances in personal genomic medicine, modern primary health care was not reaching people in, in my country. Two-thirds, it turned out, of the rural population were living in these remote communities. We ended up calling last-mile communities. But by definition, were kind of like Alaska's communities. They were an hour or more from the nearest clinic. Often, the average was four to eight hours. Some lived as many as two days away from the nearest, from the healthcare system. And the question for us became, was there a way to reach patients who, who were out of reach. This isn't just the story of, of one country or one community, one part of a country. As, as you know so well from your own work for many years, you know, the idea that illness is universal and healthcare is not is, is actually a true thing for so much of the globe. That moral outrage compelled Raj to act. It's 2007 and he's getting married. But instead of wedding gifts, he and his wife ask their friends and family to donate to a nonprofit they want to launch. They raise $6,000, and Last Mile Health is born. I asked Raj how that came about. I was volunteering at one of the only hospitals left after the war. Half of it was still destroyed. Half The, the roof wasn't even uh, there in half of the hospital. And uh, we were seeing patients who had just started to get tested for HIV not have access to treatment because the treatment was sitting in the capital where the doctors were. And the policy at the time was that only physicians could prescribe antiretroviral medicines, the medicines that HIV patients need. And so we, of course, did what anybody would do in that setting, my colleagues at that hospital, which was to ask if those medicines could be brought closer to the patients. But the answer we got was bring the patients closer to the medicine. Uh, you know, that may sound not like a big deal for anyone living in a, in a city where, uh, where hospitals are right around the corner, but in rural Liberia, it meant that you'd have to travel about 12 to 15 hours to the capital to get care. And if you were, uh, I remember one of my first patients asking her if she could do that. She came from a farming community out in the rainforest. The transport cost, about $100, would be equivalent to uh, almost her entire year of income. Now, our patients really told us, look beyond your walls. I mean, you know, look beyond the walls of the clinic, look beyond the walls of your mind, look beyond the walls of your office, and come and spend time with us, and you'll really understand what our lives are like and why 
accessing healthcare is a challenge. And I had been fortunate to come across the work of some of our close friends like Arthur Kleinman and Paul Farmer, medical anthropologists, who were teaching about how to interview patients to understand their social and economic barriers to care. And so I remember I would spend time caring for these patients in the wards of this hospital in the afternoon, and then the evening would take this patient's provocation to understand their lives and spend time interviewing them about what barriers they had. And many said, I can't afford transportation. I can't afford food. I uh, live in a community that is uh, way out in the forest. There's no roads. And so I ended up going to these places in 2007 and spending, you know, several nights in some of these villages. Um, and when I got to these places, the stories, Peter, you hear are just heartbreaking. You know, the, um, I remember one community called Bo, which I'm actually heading back to and I, uh, next week, and they had absolutely zero health care. 12 villages, 12 hours away from the nearest hospital, in the middle of the Liberian rainforest. And they were seeing their people die, again, from conditions that no one should die from. I remember the, you know you're in a remote community when you hear this story, which is a mother stuck in labor. Everybody panics because they know the baby should be coming out faster. It doesn't. And the only thing they can do, and this was the people of Bo telling me this story, was to get a makeshift stretcher, by cutting down branches from trees, taking the traditional lapa cloth that the women wear uh, to hold babies around their body, tying the branches together, and putting mom in that makeshift stretcher held by four people, and then being walked through the forest, again, up to half a day or longer. And of course, what happened? Most of them perished in the middle of the forest on that journey. And so to me, the, the moral question is obvious. Can we, as humanity, make it possible with all the resources, the innovations in business and technology in medicine that have come forward in the last several decades, can we finally make it possible or not to bring healthcare within reach of every last one of us? And then the, the real healthcare question was, you know, you've got this extraordinary challenge. In Liberia, 60% of the rural population lacks access to health care. But as we talked about, this is not just Liberia's problem. Liberia may be ground zero for the doctor shortage in the world at the time coming out of war. But when you look around the world, we know that half the world lacks access to essential life-saving health care services. When you look at that group, about a billion people, it's estimated, live in the world's most remote communities. They lack everything altogether, even vaccines. 13 million kids a year, Gavi reported this, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, just this year, in this last year, that 13 million kids go without a single dose of vaccine at all. 9 million newborns, mothers, and children die every year from preventable and treatable conditions. Preventable and treatable conditions. Why is this not getting to the last mile? Why are these innovations not reaching the people that they should reach. And it, it turns out we were realizing that you, if you don't deal with the health worker shortage, which is compounding this crisis, and to be sure, la lack of lab systems, lack of hospitals, lack of clinics, all of that matters. But if you don't have a provider, then you don't have anyone to help train. You don't have anyone that has the medical supplies to deliver care to a community like Bo, so that mother doesn't have to go 12 hours in the forest with the hammock, uh, the makeshift hammock, only to perish. And, and when you look at the health worker shortage, uh, I already told you about Liberia, 51 doctors for 4 million people. 
But if you look around the world, the, the shortage is massive. Uh, around the world, the doctor shortages and the health worker shortages in the millions. In fact, if we do nothing differently in global health, that number is going to grow to as many as the world being 18 million health workers short, an 18 million health worker gap by the year 2030 at the end of this decade. So then the question became, you know, could we take on the kind of ideas that, uh, that the Alaskans had put forward? What if residents of these remote rural communities, even those without a high school degree, uh, what if they could become a p vital part of our healthcare team, you know, with doctors and nurses? Could we not just think about healthcare as bringing the people of Bow closer to care or that HIV patient closer to the capital, but bring the point of care closer to the patient? Raj, so much richness and so much to unpack there, but I want to just pause and highlight something because, you know, I work with, with so many students who are passionate about a social or an environmental problem and work hard and study hard and research the issue and are ready to dive in and be part of the solution uh, and oftentimes show up in a place uh, without the right kind of knowledge, expertise, lived experience, ready to help and bring their solutions. And what I think is really instructive about your story is that you came in as a student, you came in to listen and learn, it took time to apprentice with the problem, as we say, and really uh, listen to the voices of your patients to understand what their needs were. And I think that really informed um, uh, both the passion, you know, driving your work, but also the, the model itself. So, so let's talk about the community health worker element of your, your last mile care model. And community health workers are nothing new, right? They've been around for decades and decades and decades. Uh, but so often, community health workers are not seen as equals or professionals in a healthcare system. They're seen as sort of secondary ways to overcome a broken health system. Um, they're often, you know, not paid, not trained, not professionalized. Talk about what's different about your approach. You know, the great majority of community health workers in the world are poor, mainly women, and uh, they don't even get paid in most settings for their work. In fact, the WHO, World Health Organization, did a uh, report last year and found that when you count up the unpaid work of the poorest women in healthcare around the world, the number's extraordinary, a trillion dollars. So a trillion dollars of subsidy is being provided by the poorest women on earth, including many of them being community health workers and nurses and midwives. They're subsidizing global health care, and, and uh, they're not getting paid for their work. And that, that number, a trillion dollars, is larger than the economies of over 150 countries. So, you know, if they're not getting paid for their work, we're probably undervaluing what they can bring to a healthcare system. And, and this really struck home in, in the story of Ruth Tarr. R Ruth was uh, 23 years old when I met her, lived in an isolated community in the rainforest of Liberia, in the sixth grade, Ruth was forced to drop out of school because her parents could no longer afford it. As an adult, she could not find work until 2012 when she was recruited as a community health volunteer. And in that role, her job was to educate her community about common diseases, to look out for children with malaria, find children with malnutrition, make sure that they're getting the care that they need. And when I met Ruth... She had virtually dropped out of work altogether because she was not getting paid. She was called a volunteer. She had never been supervised by uh, a nurse or a physician. No one had come to her village to check on how skilled she was after her initial training. She had one sachet of oral rehydration salt to, tr to treat children with diarrhea in her community. 
And this is a community where she was telling us children had been dying about, um, you know, just in the past year from these conditions. It's a small community of about 200 people. So the model was to say, what if we looked at the way we trained Ruth and ensured that we didn't just give her a sachet of oral rehydration salts, but actually leveraged the revolution in biotechnology? What if we could actually give her uh, an injectable contraceptive? What if we could actually provide her with a rapid diagnostic test for malaria so she could test for malaria in the village? And what if we could provide her with some of the treatments that could be available at the community level for uncomplicated patients? What if she could actually provide treatment to that child with malaria and then ensure that the revolution in information technology, which again is not going to stop or slow down, but the use of smartphones. Could smartphones be used to provide her with video lessons on topics like assessing a child for malnutrition, to actually see video footage of what a sick child looks like, to get self-quizzes, to keep continuously learning in the village? Uh, All of that was critical so that she could attend to the daily health needs of her neighbors to train her, to equip her, But the central other thing we did was to ask the question, what if Ruth could be paid? What if this could become a career for Ruth? What if she could, in fact, have a contract that ensures she has a dignified job from this? And so we worked with the Liberian government to change that policy of volunteers only to, in fact, enable a career path and and to pay Ruth. So that enabled her to now think of this as as a job, not as a community health worker lackey or a volunteer and under-recognized, undervalued part of the healthcare system, but a paraprofessional, a real career. And, and so why does that matter? Because not only does Ruth get a job, and it should be the right thing to do anyways, but it turns out for healthcare systems, and especially in rural areas, but also in poor parts of urban areas, it's a smart thing to do. So, so Ruth and a cadre of now several thousand community health workers have conducted about 2.6 million visits. The Liberian government itself has taken this model forward uh, as part of its National Community Health Assistant Program. That set of workers like Ruth, there are about 3,800 of them. They are providing over 2.8 million home visits since this program launched a couple years ago. They have treated almost a million children with malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, Uh, screen them for malnutrition. They have ensured that hundreds of thousands of women who were missing prenatal care get it. Now, the key thing here is that a professionalized community health system that supports a worker like Ruth, a professionalized community health worker, doesn't stop there. The best systems are the ones that are most responsive to care. So what happens when, in the village I'm about to go back to next week in Liberia, when a little girl who's nine years old develops an infection that ended up affecting her heart valve, if she has rheumatic heart disease, is Ruth going to be able to care for that patient in that village? She isn't. So if, the, if it's done right, we pair that community health worker with a higher level clinician, a nurse or a midwife often. And it's the nurse, in, in this case, Alvin, who was able to diagnose this young girl, nine years old, who Ruth had identified in her community as having a danger sign, something that's not the typical acute respiratory infection Ruth is trained to deal with, and refer this nine-year-old girl to the community clinic that, by the way, the community itself had built with community health workers, and nurses were staffing it. And eventually this girl got ultrasound in the capital, and now she's on long-term medications for heart failure, 
but she's being followed back in her home by Ruth and Alvin. That's the right kind of system for everyday epidemics. And that's, while I have to say there's so much more to be done, we're still losing so many people in rural areas. This is a starting point for starting to change that. We've talked on this show about how reframing problems is a powerful way to unlock new solutions. That's a core idea for social entrepreneurs, and it's what Reimagine is all about. So I want to highlight two reframes that we heard from Raj. First, he reframed the idea of how healthcare systems are designed. Typically, hospitals are at the center of the system. For us doctors, it's a very efficient way to deliver care. So we take a build-it-and-they-will-come approach. This can get extreme. In Lesotho, a mountainous country in southern Africa, one referral hospital consumes half of the entire country's health budget. But Raj asked, what if we put people at the center of the health system and redesigned it around their needs? That means bringing health care to the people rather than the other way around. The second reframe was what I call leading with equity. Put simply, if you start with the first principle that healthcare is a basic human right, then it becomes impossible to accept a status quo of stupid deaths. Sure, there are challenges, lack of resources, poor infrastructure, deficits of political will, but those are just excuses. Rather than say no, we're forced to ask how, and in that way, Equity is the mother of invention. Raj is now taking his community-based healthcare model beyond Liberia. He has a big vision for what this can look like across the world. There have been so many studies in multiple countries that have shown that these community health workers can, again, as part of a broader healthcare system, do everything from reducing newborn mortality in places like rural India by over 50% to uh, ensuring that Patients with cardiac chest pain with potential heart attacks can be screened at the village level in places like Alaska. But the economic case is also very powerful. Our friends at the Financing Alliance for Health and a number of other institutions did a return on investment analysis and found that for every dollar a country invests in professionalizing community health workforce, again, giving them a job, training them better, equipping them, for every dollar a country invests in that version of a community health workforce, a professionalized version, $10 is returned to society from the jobs that are created for people like Ruth, and because you're extending life expectancy in the poorest parts of the of the world. And, and you know, as I do, that the math that's been done on this, that 24% of the economic productivity and and GDP gains in the poorest countries in the world was actually due to life expectancy advances in those countries by delivering services that can be delivered by community and frontline health workers. If the 73 poorest countries were to hire, train, and equip and professionalize their community health workforces, and those community health workforces were to deliver at least 30 essential primary health care services, The world could start averting 3 million deaths every single year, preventing 3 million deaths every single year. If that started today, by 2030, the world could avert an additional 30 million deaths. A few years ago, thanks to the partnership of a number of philanthropies, TED, uh, the Skoll Foundation, the Audacious Project, we we were given an opportunity by, by receiving the TED Prize 
uh, to take initially in a million dollar investment that was then scaled up further to make a wish for the world. And so we launched something called the Community Health Academy, which is an online and blended learning academy where anyone anywhere in the world can learn to create similar community health workforce programs in their own regions. And and the content for this course is not the last mile health content. The content for this course and the courses that are coming from the Community Health Academy are actually from leaders in places like Bangladesh, where they've scaled up community health workforces, more than 50,000 workers who've helped decrease maternal and childhood mortality. They come from Ethiopia, where that country has also scaled up about 38,000 community health extension workers, again, professionalizing them, and have helped reduce and accelerate the reduction of childhood mortality. Uh, They do come from Liberia as well, but it's those leaders from those countries teaching what they've learned on an online platform. We launched the course, uh, the first course uh, last year with them. Uh, We thought maybe 2,500 people would enroll from about 20 countries. Instead, about 12,000 people have enrolled from over 180 countries. And and by the way, 25% of the class comes from uh, the United States of America and Europe. And they're struggling with trying to deliver better rural health care and dealing with the social barriers that patients face in urban areas. So, so for us, you know, I think what this all means is that to realize a future of health for all, it's going to take building a movement. And the World Health Organization and UNICEF, to their credit, they changed their own policy about whether or not to pay community health workers. In fact, Ruth Tarr from Liberia was invited to the Global Primary Healthcare Conference about two years ago to be on a panel that was introducing the world's first guidelines that the World Health Organization put forward for optimizing community health systems. And in those guidelines are two that are strongly recommended about paying community health workers, not keeping them as volunteers, and ensuring they have a contract that recognizes the dignity and the rights they have to work. And and Ruth was asked at that meeting, because she had actually gone from being a volunteer worker to being one who's paid, why that mattered. And it was so powerful in this room of about 100 or so health policy leaders, health ministers, et cetera. She turned to all of them and said, you know, because I'm getting paid, because I'm recognized, Not only am I better able to serve my own people, but I'm using that money to pay for my daughter's education. My daughter's in the sixth grade. I dropped out in the sixth grade. I want to make sure she finishes high school. One day, I want to train to become a nurse, and I'm saving that money for that. And by the way, she said, I challenge all of you to go back to your own communities, your own villages, your own countries, your own cities, and invest in community-based primary health care so that there can be justice and health for all. And, you know, several months later, the WHO passed a resolution. And then at the first declaration that the United Nations put forward, 190 countries signed up for in September of 2019, they highlighted that investing in community health workforces, in community health workers like Ruth, creating jobs for them, was going to be a central part towards achieving universal health coverage. And and let me just be, like, clear. We know that declarations are not enough. In in the history of social movements, power has never been easily granted by those who have it. It has to be demanded by those from whom it's been taken. And and I think that um, we still have a lot of work to do to turn a declaration into action. 
But I feel more optimistic now than I ever have that that is possible and within our reach. As this movement grows around the world, back in Liberia, 80% of the country is now served by community health workers. Together, they have begun to create a health and social safety net, perhaps for the first time. A community-based healthcare system is a more resilient healthcare system. And resilience matters, especially in times of outbreaks. We're all learning that lesson now in the age of coronavirus. Liberia faced an earlier test, the Ebola outbreak that began in 2013. And they're building on those lessons now. Guess what? The first thing they got trained on was identifying epidemic diseases and doing surveillance. So just this morning, I got an email from our colleagues at the Ministry of Health and our our local, our last mile health team in Liberia. And of course, let's make no mistake, those at greatest risk from COVID-19 uh, are going to be the countries with the worst healthcare systems, the, the healthcare systems that are least developed. And they largely are in rural parts of places like Liberia. But there is a way in that system to get prepared for this. And the Liberian government has taken its equivalent of the Centers for Disease Control, something called the National Public Health Institute of Liberia, and is talking to the head of the community health program in Liberia, where these nurses and community health workers work, And they're talking about how to ensure that that community event-based surveillance system, which was designed after Ebola, can be optimized to ensure that um, COVID-19 is identified earlier if it comes to Liberia and is responded to uh, with these community and frontline health workers. So just yesterday, our our community health workers were teaching communities about what COVID-19 is. But one out of five epidemic cases in the country in the last three years has been identified at that community level by health workers like Ruth, one out of five. And it's decreased the response time. You know, you want to try to find one of these triggers within 24 hours and then respond. It's decreased the response time uh, dramatically uh, because it's extended the healthcare system in that area. So that's not saying Liberia is immune to COVID-19. But is Liberia better prepared? Does it have better resources than it had to deal with this today than then? At the level of the community, it does. And that's because there were this idea that you don't stop after the acute crisis. You build a system. The true worth of a system is not what it does in the first year, the first three years, the first 10 years. It's what it does over decades. And that is a mantra that probably is something, this idea of short-termism, is something that we ought to interrogate and revisit and really adopt long-termism when we try to evaluate social entrepreneurship, not just global health. My conversation with Raj was recorded at the end of February. Two weeks later, the first cases of COVID-19 were reported in Liberia. To date, the number of coronavirus cases across Africa remains relatively low, but it has doubled over the past two weeks. So I went back to Raj for an update. We know that while there are about 50,000 COVID-19 cases as of May 5th across all the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and that this number is smaller relatively to areas like Europe or the United States, we also know that the testing capacity is not where it needs to be yet. So number one, 50,000 confirmed cases is likely a dramatic underestimate of the true COVID-19 infection rate in Africa. 
Second, the projections from groups like Imperial College of London are showing that without immediate intervention, Sub-Saharan Africa could see as many as a billion COVID-19 infections and up to two and a half to three million deaths from COVID. That is what would happen if nothing was done. Of course, there is action happening now to try to get ahead of the curve. Those four efforts to test, isolate and treat, find and quarantine are the efforts that the countries that have been successful in suppressing the virus have deployed. Several countries in Africa are trying to use the same methods, but there's more attention that's needed in those hotspots. Epidemics also can cause a healthcare system collapse, and the projections show that the healthcare system collapse could lead to an excess in child mortality by about 45%, and in maternal mortality by about 40%. So those things give me great amount of concern for the epidemic in Africa. There was one other thing I really wanted to ask Raj about. Currently, more than half the world's population is in some form of lockdown. To get out of it safely, we're going to need armies of contact tracers to help break chains of transmission. Raj has been writing and talking about this as an opportunity to address both the health crisis and the unemployment crisis globally and in the U.S. Right now, the virus does have a large part of the world on lockdown. And the only way we get out of the situation we're in now is to put the virus on lockdown. To achieve viral suppression, there has to be a massive effort to test, but then also to track or trace the contacts, those who've been in touch with the infected patients, that work of contact tracing, if done well, can help break the chain of transmission of an epidemic. We saw this during the Ebola epidemic. The hiring, training, and equipping of local community health workers is going to be vital during the COVID-19 epidemic. We know that's true in Liberia, where Already, the government of Liberia is taking this workforce that they created during Ebola, a community health workforce, and has started to train them on the prevention, detection, and response to contact trace to do the active case finding. But that work is equally important in settings like the United States, where we've seen over a million infections and several tens of thousands of deaths from coronavirus. There is an effort here in the United States put forward by a few legislators this week in Congress to put forward a health force bill to hire up to a million unemployed Americans from their own home communities, those most affected by coronavirus, to be trained and employed as community health workers. And if we do that, just as Liberia found, not only is there a chance to suppress the virus and achieve our public health goals, But we will lessen to some degree the economic pain that is coming from this virus by generating a core of people who can not only help us deal with this pandemic, but be ready to address the next pandemic and also be there to address the everyday epidemics of premature death that at-risk and vulnerable communities face around the world today. My thanks to Raj Punjabi. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to Reimagine, 
a podcast series about people who are inventing the future. Listen, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Droback, or email me at peter at reimaginedpodcast.com. To learn more about the podcast and social entrepreneurship, visit reimaginedpodcast.com. Thanks, and stay safe.